0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, the Package Tourist, and the Magical Mystery Tour called Life. Matthew Diaz. Tonight's guest is author Jeffrey D. Simon. Jeff lives in Santa Monica, California, and is an internationally recognized author, lecturer, and consultant on terrorism and political violence. He is a president. He is the president of the Political Risk Assessment Company and is a visiting lecturer in political in the Political Science Department at UCLA. Jeffrey has written three critically acclaimed works on terrorism, The Alphabet Bomber, Lone Wolf Terrorism, and The the Terrorist Trap. Tonight, we'll be discussing his fourth book, which will be released next month, America's Forgotten Terrorists, The Rise and Fall of the Galleonists. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Um, Please tell our listeners about your upcoming release. Who exactly were the Galleonists?
1: Uh, the Gallianus, and the book's going to be released actually this Sunday, May 1st, so it's very exciting. The Gallianists were this incredible terrorist group that even many terrorist experts weren't aware of. Uh, their leader was a very charismatic uh, Italian immigrant named Luigi Galliani, and he was basically like Osama bin Laden. He was a spellbinding speaker, he had a loyal following among Italians who were discriminated against in the early 1900s, and he even also had a newspaper that he uh, published called Chronica Subversiva, called the Chronicle of Subversion, and he also published a bomb manual. He basically was a terrorist um, mainly wanting to overthrow government everywhere. You know, it's basically the anarchist with no organization to replace it. It was going to be a free society among the individuals, and this group were the most creative we have ever seen. They came up with terrorist tactics that are still being used today.
0: When was this terrorist group formed?
1: They were formed in the early 1900s. Um, Galliani came over to the United States. He was an anarchist in Europe. He was born in Italy in 1861, and he was in prison in different countries, escaped, and came over to Paterson, New Jersey, in 1901, and then over the next 20 years, built his following. The Galliana started their terrorist activity in 1914, and in the, about six years, from 1914 to 1920, they were responsible for a whole series of very innovative and
0: um, dangerous attacks. Did the tax, attacks take, uh, t- uh, takes, uh, take place solely in the United States, or was this international attacks?
1: These were solely in the United States, and what happened was, I mean, there were anarchist attacks all over the world, but the Gallianists were focusing on the U.S., because that's where they were, and basically, in 1914, there was a series of attacks against churches, against police stations, and one of the most interesting, and you could almost say it was an odd terrorist attack, occurred in 1916, when one of the Gallianists was working as a chef in a Chicago uh, meeting hall where they were honoring a religious figure. And what happened was he poisoned the soup with uh, arsenic. And it turned out he poisoned, uh, he put too much arsenic in the soup, so most of the guests threw up and it failed in the killing. But it became national news. He was on the run. Nobody knew really who he was. He he called himself Gene Crohn's, His real name was Nelson Donlingio, I believe that was how it's pronounced, and he was a member of the Gallianas. And that was one of the examples of their thinking out of the box. They also had a member who was known in the media as a dynamite girl. She was involved in trying to place explosives in the Midwest. But the two major attacks that they were known for occurred in 1919. And if you think about this happening today, you can realize what a sensation it had caused. The uh, Gallianus, their newspaper, Chronicus Aversiva, was banned from the mails. Just as Parton called it the most aversive uh, uh, rag sheet we've ever seen, and so they were not allowed to send it through the mails anymore. So what they decided to do was strike back by sending bombs through the mail, and they made these very ingenious package bombs from Gimbel's department store, which was a famous department store in New York during that time. And they put it in a loose cylinder, and it said on the outside, this is a gift for you from Gimbel's, and they made 30 of these bombs to send all across the country. Not all of them arrived at the destination. A couple did. A senator's wife was injured. But in one of those twists of fate, a postal worker was on the subway going home one night when he read about one of the bombs injuring the senator's wife. And then he said, wow, I have 16 packages similar to that that I'm holding in the New York Post Office because there's not enough postage. So he ran back, you know, went back to the uh, the post office and they called the bomb squad and they was able to you know, dismantle it. But the bomb expert said this was the most ingenious uh, bomb he had ever seen. It was a very small contraption. So that was pretty startling. So the whole country was like, wow, we we have this terrorist group. Um, They didn't point to the Gallianas yet, but they knew there were some anarchists sending package bombs across the country. And people, just like the Unabomber years ago, were afraid to open their packages. And then a month later, they set off, and this time there was a physical bomb, nine bombs in seven cities the same night. And they actually went up to the home of the Attorney General, uh, Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer. And the terrorist tripped as he was going up the stairs, and the bomb went off, killing him. Palmer was inside, but he wasn't injured. But you can imagine, it happened on June 2nd, 1919, the sensation that that caused across the country. And then the hunt was on for who were these bombers.
0: It's interesting, the way you describe these bomb packages. They were basically doing Unabomber decades before Unabomber started striking. I mean same mo's when you think about it by decades they're anticipating them
1: absolutely and the unabomber you know he was mentally ill but he was brilliant yeah he was a uc berkeley professor and so he built these very sophisticated you know bonds But the gallianus they had you know some very smart people among them and they were yeah doing the exact same thing and then what happened was as the hunt goes on for the gallianus it also uh, came at the same time as what many of your listeners might know uh, or heard of was the Red Scare. Yeah. And the Red Scare was when right all radicals, anarchists, communists were sort of rounded up a number, you know, deported. Uh, Galliani himself was uh, deported in June of 1919, right actually at the same time that these other bombs had gone off. But then nothing really happened for about a year, year and a half and this is one of the lessons we can learn from earlier times in terrorism. A law in terrorism does not mean that threat is over, because then in 1920, one of the last remaining Gallianists, Mario Buda, is suspected of being the perpetrator of what at that time was the worst terrorist attack in U.S. history. A horse and wagon exploded on Wall Street, killing 38 people and injuring many others. And that was a um, called the Wall Street bombing. And the perpetrator, he was never caught. And he basically escaped and went over to Europe. But we've had these lessons, but for some reason, that Wall Street bombing faded out a couple years after the attack. There were no more attacks, so it wasn't public news anymore. And it was almost like Al-Qaeda's attack, except Al-Qaeda continued to attack after the 9-11. But the Gallianos holds uh, so many lessons for today. I mean, one of the things also is that repressive measures can work, but at a cost to our civil liberty. Yeah. You know, the repressive measures that were done kind of wiped out the Gallianas and others, but you know, it was a um, it really was an attack on our own democracy, and that was the problem.
0: Do you think what the Gallianas did, you know, during the nineteen tens and up to nineteen nineteen contributed to the atmosphere in the infamous Sacco and Vanzetti case?
1: Well, Sacco and Vanzetti were Gallianists. That's what's amazing. They okay. were members of the Gallianists, but what happened was their trial was for a robbery murder. That was separate from what the Gallianists were doing. But there was a there was a robbery murder for which they were implicated, and they may or may not have been uh, responsible for that, but their trial was unfair. You know, the judge was unfair and everybody uh, believed that they did not get a fair trial. But they were definitely involved with the Gallianus bombing and other attacks, but that was nothing to do with you know with their trial. And it did create a fear of um, terrorists and anarchists, so part of that trial in the 20s because have also been a reflection of sort of the anxiety over the Gallianus.
0: Jeffrey, please tell our listeners, where can they find this book?
1: Find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the major places, and also the publisher
0: is Potomac Books, and they could find that there also. Tell me, uh, when w- getting back to the Gallianus uh, what agencies were prosecuting? Was it stri- was it was it state and federal? I mean, because back then w- w- they don't have the massive law enforcement that we have now. Who was who was what law enforcement agencies were involved in tracking the Gallianus You know, catching them and prosecuting them.
1: Right. It, it was both state and federal. Um, the NYPD um, created actually a bomb squad, the New York Police Department, as a response to Gallianus and similar type of anarchist bombing. And then the Bureau of Investigation, which was the predecessor to the FBI, was mainly involved in the federal pursuit. And many of the Galeanis got away in terms of they either went underground and then uh, left for uh, Europe. They got away without being uh, prosecuted, but a few did.
0: Jeffrey, please tell our listeners about your other books, your earlier works, and what do they cover?
1: Well, actually, it's an interesting story. Um, all, all the books that I've done, what I love—I love writing, but I also love the research aspect of it because, you know, as you know very well, working in the archives, you learn new things as you do research—things you never expected. My first book was *The Terrorist Trap: America's Experience with Terrorism*. And that was written actually in the 1990s, the early 1990s. And what I wanted to do is see how different administrations handled the terrorist problem. And I discovered in the course of the research that one of my high school classmates was a victim of what was the worst hijacking in terrorism history before 9-11. Now, 9-11, Al-Qaeda hijacked four planes. Before that, in 1970, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, PFLP, hijacked four planes on the same day. And my uh, classmate remained a hostage for 50 days until she was finally released. So I figured, wow, this is really, really interesting. I'm going to have to work that into the book. And then I learned another high school classmate of mine had an experience with terrorism, but her experience was in becoming a terrorist. She joined the Weather Underground, which is a radical leftist, group active in the 60s and 70s, and she got involved in in a Brinks armored truck robbery in Nyack, New York in 1981, and she served a prison term up until just a couple years ago when she was finally commuted. But what was interesting was when I went back to my high school yearbook to just verify these people are, you know, who I think they are, I saw all three of us in the same group photo for the Honor Society, the terrorists. The hostage and myself. And, you know, one time I told that story and somebody called in on a radio show wanting to know if my uh, ter- my high school was called Terrorism High. But you discover that, those, those kind of things. And um, so the terrorist trap was dealing with how different administrations have handled their uh, terrorism crisis and what we might be seeing in the future. And actually in that book, there was a chapter on the future, and it's before 9-11, and I said one of the future trends was going to be terrorism from the air that terrorists were going to crash planes in the building. But I didn't forecast that it was going to be, you know, a uh, passenger uh, plane you know, with all the fuel that would be, would be able to bring down, you know, the towers. But that terrorists always look for ways to rise above the din and do things differently. And before 9-11, we had uh, hijacked, we had basically uh, car bombings in Lebanon We had terrorist attacks at sea, the USS Cole. So really it was only a matter of time before terrorists going to escalate. And one of the reasons terrorists do that is because people get desensitized to the same flow of terrorism. Uh, Car bombing after car bombing, they don't pay as much attention. So terrorists always have this incentive to either do something totally different or create more casualties. Then the, the next book I wrote was on lone wolf terrorism. And... That was called Lone Wolf Terrorism, Understanding the Growing Threat. And that was about 10 years ago before the Lone Wolf Threat really kind of mushroomed. And I always was fascinated by how you know we talk about groups and we talk about these uh, powerful, well-financed terrorist groups. But sometimes a single terrorist, like the Unabomber and others, can create a lot of havoc. So that book dealt with what was um, happening then and what I thought was going to happen as we went down the road. And then a few years yeah. ago, I focused just on one lone wolf, Murat, Muharram Kebekovic, who was known as the alphabet bomber. Now, his story was really interesting because he, he no. also was mentally, uh, mentally ill, but he was very bright, and he had like a one-man war against government and society, and he set off the first bomb at an airport. No other group had done that given attacks at airports and shootings, but he placed a bomb at a locker at LAX in August of 1974, went off, killed three people, injured a bunch of others, and then he left a audio tape saying, this is, well, I'm, he didn't give his name, he said, I'm so-and-so, leader of a group. The first bomb uh, was with the letter A, the next will be L, the next with I, until we spell our name, across the country in blood, and he said, I am part of... Leader of the group Aliens of America, so uh, a bomb had went off, and everybody's wondering, God, what's the next bomb? There's going to be an L bomb, and sure enough, a bomb. And he let the media know about this. He played the media. He told them that there's a bomb in a locker at Grand at the uh, Greyhound State bus station in downtown L.A. The police went there. They found the bomb. They evacuated uh, the whole you know uh, bus terminal, and they said had it gone off, a hundred people would have been killed. And then there was a race against time to find an I-bomb. And this went on for the summer of 1974. And he was finally caught because he couldn't resist talking. He Hmm. basically left all these audio tapes and enough clues. And this is something terrorists do. Um, That's why it's always good if a terrorist wants to communicate or even post a manifesto to let them do that. Because that's that's how the Unabomber was actually caught. You know, his brother saw enough writings. We basically have seen these things happen in the past, and, you know, they happen, you know, again, but the alphabet bomber was one of these cases of where, again, most people now don't remember that, and we have so many forgotten cases
0: in uh, in terrorism,
1: like the Gallianas.
0: Jeffrey, where were you born and raised, and what led you to become an expert in terrorism? Oh, I
1: was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and the... Desire to become a terrorist expert just basically evolved. Um, after I got my uh, graduate degree in political science, I was focusing on international crises, political violence, and then I went to work at RAND uh, in the 1980s, and there was like a terrorism unit there where I focused a little more on the terrorism studies. And then the more you know, you write about terrorism, you talk about terrorism, it sort of becomes your niche. And back in the 80s and the 90s. Terrorism, you know, wasn't the, you know, quote-unquote popular subject it is today. You know, 9-11 really was a game changer. And what I tell everybody who who is younger is that terrorism did not begin with 9-11. You know, as you can see in the book I'm writing, it just came out now. But this was even terrorism back in ancient times. So terrorism has always been there. And anytime you hear anybody say, we're going to win the war against terrorism just ignore that because you can't win a war against something like terrorism when that could be defined as one person with one bomb and one cause you just can't eliminate that and so unfortunately we're always going to have terrorism but we just want to try to reduce the numbers try to reduce the attacks and try to um, you know prevent the terrorists as much as we can from doing what they want to do but there's such a diverse array of terrorism it covers the whole political, religious spectrum. There's no one major threat today that you can say it's Islamic terrorism or it's just right-wing terrorism. It's both of those. Plus, you have anarchists, you have single-issue terrorists, you have a whole, you know, a smorgasbord of terrorism. And that, unfortunately, is, is the world we live in. And we just have to try to, as citizens, be aware of our surroundings. You see something suspicious and you know, see, see something say something, and basically try to live our lives without the fear of terrorism, but still being alert.
0: Jeff, considering the fact that America is seething with political tension and with the storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, how, today, how great is the danger of America being torn apart by fascist extremist terrorism, in your opinion?
1: Well, it, it's that. That's a good question, and there's no real easy answer. I don't see the country being torn apart because I, I just have great faith in the American people and the American institutions. I think there's going to be great divisions, and there will be the turmoil. There will be like what happened on January sixth. But I just I'm one of those who don't really see the doomsday scenario of us, you know going to a civil war or being totally torn apart. But definitely, it's dangerous trends. That have to be addressed, and I think we have seen that being addressed. So in the way you look at the aftermath of what happened, you know, January sixth, and the reaction and steps being taken, and so it wasn't just sort of you know swept under the rug. And I think we're going to be a, a little more alert and a little more hopefully prepared, so those kind of incidents will not ever happen again.
0: Jeff, whenever I interview an author, I always ask this single standard question: When you were growing up. Who were your favorite authors? And of those favorite authors, did any of them inspire you to become a writer, an author, or perhaps influence your personal writing style?
1: Um, not really, because, um, first of all, I, I read a lot of sports books. <laughs> I grew up loving uh, baseball and, and hockey and football, so that didn't really inspire me. But one book that did inspire me it was, I think his name was Michael Harrington, and it was the early 60s, and he wrote a book called The Other America, mm. and it's just a great title. And what it really dealt with, and it's so long ago that I read it, so I'm probably going to get it wrong, but that there was poverty in America. You know, people in the early 60s, you know, if you're living in a middle-class environment, you just weren't aware of the poverty. And I think he was dealing with the poverty in Appalachia, so that kind of book, you know, made me aware of you know the power that authors can have. But I never really grew up with the intention to be the author. It was to be um, get my graduate degree in political science, do studies, and always loved writing. And the more I was writing on term papers, uh, my PhD dissertation, things like that, I said I want to write books. And you know, the beauty of the writing books is it's a long journey. But you know, when people read it and they say they like it, it just makes the whole process worthwhile.
0: Jeff, what will be your next book project, and when can we expect its release?
1: Uh, I'm working on a, a biography of a individual named William J. Flynn, who was active in the early 1900s, the same period as the Gallianists. But that's not going to be for a while. But that book probably in. You know, couple of years or so, but if you have me back on the show, I'd be happy to talk about that book as it gets closer to its release date. But still got to finish the writing process.
0: or <laughs> well, you let me know, I'll I would love to have you on. You're Jeff, you're always welcome to appear on this show. I mean, this is a fantastic interview. Um, question I mean, today happens to be a uh, Holocaust day, and um. And a few weeks ago, there was—I saw an item on the news that says uh, reported acts of anti-Semitism have been rising dramatically. Do you see this as another example of terrorism in your view?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, the um, neo-Nazi, white supremacist threat is very real, and um, in terms of the anti-Semitism, not just the U.S. Uh, in Europe or so, it's on the rise. And one of the things that I think is important for everybody to understand about terrorism, there's no single consensus definition of terrorism. And usually, for example, if you have school shootings. Yeah. They're not called terrorism. And people say, well, why isn't that terrorism? The reason is that basically for something to be terrorism, there has to be a political or a social or religious motive. Now, interestingly, that motive could simply be somebody leaving a note. You know, I shot at the school because I'm upset with Amer- you know, the U.S. killing school children overseas. Then that would be terrorism. But if it's somebody who's bullied, let's say, and shoots up a school, we don't call it terrorism. Yet, the effect's the same. It's still terror, and we have that tragedy. And then there's even terrorist events where no motivation was uncovered. The worst mass shooting in U.S. history happened a few years ago in Las Vegas. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Paddock. Right? And they worked a year to try to find a uh, motive. Depression was he angry and they couldn't find anything. So we we have these kind of issues with terrorism, but definitely from anti-Semitism to terrorism on all parts of political spectrum, uh, we don't see any really end in sight, and we really can't get expectations up for that kind of you know expectation. But basically, that we just have to try to deal with it as best we can and try to prevent it. Uh, in terms of when we um, see certain indicators. But definitely, anti-Semitism is a very serious uh, growing threat in this country.
0: Jeff, one, one quick question. Uh, the weather girl that you taught you were classmates with, was that Kathy Boudin or was that Bernadette Dorn?
1: She was. It was no, her name was Judith Clark. Oh. And she was involved with, uh, she went on trial with Kathy Boudin. Um, I don't know if Bernadette Dorn was in the same Group of this is an armed robbery in Nyack, New York. But Kathy routine got, uh, I think, 25 years to life and then got paroled. But Judith Clark got three consecutive 25 uh, to life because she didn't plead guilty. She actually wanted a trial. She worked, acted as her own lawyer. So it was a whole you know process. But you know, she was involved with that group.
0: Jeff, I want to thank you so much for appearing on this show, and I wish you good luck with your future book project. Please let me know when it's released. I'll have you on my show again, and please be safe.
1: Definitely. You too, and everybody else. Stay safe.
0: May God bless and keep you and your family always. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.
0: Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show, where I will be interviewing historian Chris Kulikowski. Thank you and good night.